job seeker to remain a poverty payment, a fourth woman reports sexual assault by the Liberal Party staffer, democracy versus capitalism, Crown, Facebook and the disaster in Texas. And the good news is about farms. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison and with me, as always, is the <laughs> lovely, the giggling, the puppy cuddling, left-wing extraordinaire that is Van Badham. Van, how are you today? I am the left-wing extraordinaire. I, I notice it's a bit windy. You can hear our shed creaking, everyone. Just in case you wanted more definitive proof that we do this from our shed in the most amateurish way possible... <laughs> You can literally hear the wind knocking the trees against the shed roof. And if if I sound slightly lightheaded, Ben sprayed the shed with fly spray before closing the door. We live in the country. <laughs> I, uh, and in, in some extra good news today, I also we just want to thank everybody for making The Week on Wednesday one of the top 200 listened to podcasts in Australia. That includes podcasts that are made uh, in America and the UK. By people who get paid to make podcasts and don't do them in their shed. So I have a feeling, Ben, we may indeed quite likely be the top rated shed podcasts in the oh, country. Look, I, I'm not prepared to go that far. <laughs> I'm not going to go on a limb like that. <laughs> but uh, I do want to thank everybody. It's really great. And uh, please do keep listening. Hope you do keep enjoying. Do keep the feedback coming as well because it's really uh, – we've – picked up on some great stories from people contacting us directly through Twitter and Facebook and emailing us as well. So, Although I've got to say, the people who called us Australia's cutest socialist podcast maybe have created a monster because Ben and I are just going to lean into it now. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You can expect more Instagram posts. <laughs> Um, all right, it's uh, it's been a big week, so let's jump into it. Um, we've seen this week that uh, the Morrison government has announced that Job Seeker is to remain a poverty payment um, once the uh, COVID supplement is removed in March. Oh, but Ben, an extra twenty five dollars a week. I mean, that might even buy you a sandwich. Well, it's not going to buy you much more. The government's trying to spin this as some kind of big increase, but of course, what it actually equates to is a five. $100 cut in what most people on Job Seeker were getting in 2020. Uh, so, realistically, you're going to see people who are on Job Seeker now receiving less than they are now. Uh- I don't, I mean, we understand the logic because it's neoliberal logic and neoliberals hate the welfare state. They yeah. hate it. Um, would feed us to the dogs if the dogs would eat us. Isn't that right, Jim? But certainly it's com- it's completely ridiculous. It is a cut. I don't understand how you can say at the height of the pandemic you need this money in order to be able to live and yet now that we're hopefully coming out of the pandemic, although we're still not out of the woods yet, no. suddenly you can live on less money. Like, especially when um, various economic indicators have suggested particularly housing is getting more expensive. Oh, well, th- this is this is where ideology has run mad, right? We've seen Matt Canavan today talk about we need to be careful increasing the dole when we have so much debt, particularly to China. We've heard rumours come out of the coalition party room. That's a bit of a trifecta. We've managed to talk about debt, China and the dole in the one sentence. Well done, Matt. I'm sure 
Sorry, you practiced all morning. Oh well, you know Matt Canavan is very, very good at his uh, at his cosplay, so he knows how to spin all the lines together. But it's also ridiculous when you see coalition MPs uh, saying that they may cross the cross the floor to avoid voting for this. That they don't think we should be giving nine billion dollars to the unemployed. Now, let's be really clear here: there isn't nine billion dollars being given to the unemployed. There is a roughly billion dollar a year increase in the total amount of job seeker uh, payments being made. But a big chunk of that is because there's twice as many people on job seeker than there were in February of 2020 before the pandemic hit. So this is not um, about being overly generous with people who are not trying to find jobs. This is about the fact that there are less jobs than there are people who want to work. That's what unemployment is. Uh, And the government is still predicting that there'll be 6.6, 6, 6.8% unemployment in a year's time. It is just so absolutely disgraceful. And unemployment is really where you can nail the hypocrisy of Liberals and other and other conservative parties throughout the world. Because universally they talk about how unemployment is a, is a bad thing mm. and people shouldn't be unemployed. And yet there are never enough jobs. So the reason why unemployment exists is, of course, there aren't enough jobs. Like we know this. So if Scott Morrison, Matt Canavan and all their little buddies are so concerned about the terrible plague of idleness which afflicts the unemployed, there's very direct solution, and that is directly creating some jobs. Extraordinarily, Absolutely. this was what Robert Menzies did in the 1950s, which is one of the things that kept him in power for so long and kept the Liberals in power for so long, was that they maintained the framework of full employment that had been put in place by John Curtin and the Labor Party in the 1940s, where the Curtin White Paper on unemployment, mm. on full employment, as it's called, said there should be no unemployment in the Australian economy. There are always things to do, and it is the responsibility responsibility of the government to channel jobs towards nation building, build infrastructure at the time, put in mm. uh, put in um, sewerage, put in electricity, build the snowy mountains again, these kind of things. Well, we're living in a climate emergency and there's plenty that we can do in Australia. Like Absolutely. there's so much infrastructure that could be built, industries that could be reorganised. If the Morrison government is looking for bang for buck, they could invest in government enterprises that directly employ people and give people people spend capacity in the broader economy as well as making Australia a more, oh, God help me to say it, economically efficient place to live. But that's not what neoliberals want. They like people being unemployed. Why do people? Why do neoliberals like people being unemployed, Ben? Why? Why, why, why? Because it drives down wages. It drives down wages and it makes it easier for them to exploit working people. And that's what we're seeing. Even in the announcements this week from the government, Michaelia Cash came out with their um, dob in a job seeker oh, hotline, right? So as you say, there's lots of, lots of potential opportunity for government in infrastructure, in climate, in the NDIS, in public services, public services and social services, a whole range of things that they could be employing people to do. But instead, they're going to create a hotline for employers and job agencies to dob in job seekers who turn down a job. Now, jobs could be turned down because the person was sexually harassed in the interview. could be turned down because it's not appropriate to move your whole family interstate for a seasonal job in an industry where there's rife exploitation, for example. These are just two examples of why somebody might legitimately say, actually, I'm not going to take that job because they're not safe, because they're going to be exploited, because it's not appropriate to move the whole family. And yet, 
now they're going to be or subjected to investigation about you know wage theft or Absolutely. safety standards or any of those things. It, like I was telling this story on Twitter today when I was eighteen, after I had left school and before I made the decision to go to university, I registered as unemployed with mm. what was then the CES, and I was physically on my way to a job interview. I was still at the house, mm. but you know, getting ready and everything. When I got this frantic phone call from the CES yep. saying that the guy who I was going to a job interview with had been done for using the job interview to sexually blackmail girls who were my age. So pretending there was a job there, a girl would turn up to the interview, something that was not described to me in detail, but we can all presume what it was, happened, and this is, somebody had finally told the CES that this was what was going on. And we know it happens. Yeah. And the idea that Michaelia Cash, especially at this political moment, would put more power in the hands of potential predators in a system where, you know, the the presumption of fault is always with the unemployed is unbelievably disempowering and literally puts women at risk. Oh, it's it's absolutely outrageous. When you consider the power imbalance that already exists to further disempower unemployed working people in that way is is an outrageous abuse of power and really tells a lot about the ideology that Morrison and Cash have because that was a big, big part of their press conference on Tuesday was about this central kind of pillar of, yeah, yeah, don't worry so much about that we're giving unemployed people a little bit more money. What we're really also doing is we're cracking down on the dodgy people in the system. And by dodgy people, we mean the unemployed. Mm. You know, it's a ridiculous uh, throwback uh, to this sort of neoliberal ideology that demonises the unemployed, puts women at risk, puts other vulnerable people at risk, and puts more power into the hands of people who are already very powerful in our economy. Now, we've got a lot to cover. So, I want to move on because you've touched on it here already. The the political moment that we're in, of course, is a political moment of of sort of total chaos in the Morrison government um, because, as as most people will be aware, a fourth woman has come forward uh, and reported the alleged rapist of Brittany Higgins um, for another sexual assault. So that's four uh, Liberal uh, Party members, I suppose you'd say. So that's There was a volunteer. Three staff members and a volunteer. And three staff members and the revelations keep coming and it's becoming more and more implausible to believe that the Morrison government didn't know. Like, well, clearly two on. ministers did. So Morrison two continues ministers. to say that he was not aware. But but this is, and I agree with you, Van. Can I just I just want to touch on the, the sort of political timeline elements here, and, and and you know then you should talk more about about it. But so it it now comes out that Morrison's um, personal private secretary contacted Brittany Higgins when the Four Corners stories about Tudge and Porter came out just to check in. So this is a person who has intimate daily contact with the Prime Minister, and yet the Prime Minister still claims he wasn't aware of the situation. Um, it's come out that... You've been a Chief of Staff, Ben. Is that likely? Oh, it's in, it's entirely implausible. It's entirely implausible. You know, the, the, there is no reality in which a person who holds that position... Does not have some form of conversation with their principal, their primary, the prime minister in this case, um, about what is happening, uh, and it, you know, as off the record as you might want it to be in inverted commas, um, there's no question in my mind now that Morrison 
was at that point at least aware, if not before, um, most likely before. Um, it's now uh, clear that the Prime Minister's office, Morrison's office, was involved in the firing of the alleged rapist as well. That's that's become clear. Uh, and it's also, uh, turns out that Morrison raised issues with Craig Kelly about his senior staff member, who is also been accused of sexual impropriety. Um, in in that case, it looks as though towards very young women. Underage. Underage. Uh, girls. Uh, 16-, 17-year-old girls taken in as interns to Craig Kelly's office. It paints an awful, awful picture of uh, the Morrison Prime Ministership and the Prime Minister's office. Allegations about Kelly's staffer include inappropriate touching, uh, one-on-one discussions in closed rooms, very young women being made to feel that, you know, put in a position to make to feel that they owed him for something more abusive power, more exploitative dynamics. These are the allegations that were made in an article in The Guardian this week that are certainly by Anne Davies, who's one of our best mm. investigative journalists. So I certainly recommend people read it. But the allegations are deplorable. And this had been brought up, apparently, in 2016, when Craig Kelly was facing a pre-selection battle. In 2018, when he was facing another pre-selection battle, this behaviour of this particular staff member, according to the Guardian article, had been mentioned. And yet Craig Kelly miraculously survived with the intervention of... Who intervened, Ben? Who intervened? Scott Morrison. Scott Morrison intervened. It's it's a troubling, troubling series of interconnected events. But I guess he hadn't had the discussion with Jenny yet, so he didn't know that it was wrong because his wife yeah. hadn't told him to think of these girls as if they were his own daughters and therefore relevant to his life. It it, it just boggles the mind, really, doesn't it? That, that here you have a situation where Brittany Higgins has come forward and really is blowing the lid off what appears to be a culture of um, abuse, misconduct, um, potentially rape within the Morrison government. Certainly four women making allegations suggest there's credibility to their statements. Yeah. That's what's... I mean, that's what's really upsetting. One of the articles that came out this week was a woman who said that the incident she alleges to have happened with this individual Mm. occurred after they had left Parliament House, after that individual had left Parliament House, meaning that if the kind of due process that's followed in the overwhelming majority of Australian workplaces Mm. Mm. had been followed, she wouldn't have been in that position for that to happen. And that's heartbreaking. And, you, you know, this is, I think this is what a lot of people are struggling with. If this happened in, in my workplace yep. or in yours or in the public service, like there are processes and procedures. And we've all become really aware of what those are. And like working in the arts, we begin when we, because we're all subcontracting the arts, when we begin a contract, when we begin mm. a, a project, Um, The company that hires us explains what our rights are, tells us what the channels of complaint are. Like, it's very explicit now after all this time. And The Australian ran an article this week, and this 
pushed me over a bit, I've got to say, saying, you know, women deserve to be safe in the halls of power. Mm. And it's like, love, women deserve to be safe everywhere. Absolutely. Like, do you understand that you making that distinction, that there are perhaps women somewhere who deserve to be less safe, actually makes all women less safe? Like, you shouldn't have to enter a rarefied space to be protected. And I think the fact that it, it happens there and that there is this such a casual culture mm. um you know almost a glibness pushing this to the, to like aside pretending you didn't know you know mm. like weasel words never directly answering a question about what you knew when you know the ridiculous sort of well Jenny's told me that it's bad so I guess it's bad speech and the kind of shenanigans that are going on at the, at the end of that, we're looking at a situation where at least four women have a very legitimate, credible complaint about something violating and traumatic that has happened to them. And the idea that par- that a parliamentary office when or several parliamentary officers mm. would walk away from responsibility dealing with that is just morally shameful. Ministerial officers as well, and potentially... Um, the office of the Prime Minister. In, in one way or another, the office of the Prime Minister was clearly aware because we know that they've reached out. We know that they're involved in the processes, what as, as haphazard and incomplete as they may have been. They were involved. You know, this, this goes fundamentally strikes to the trust that one can have in the current government and their ability to be honest with the Australian people, to do their duty to protect protect the Australian people and to follow the laws that they pass. You know, these are ministers. This is, you know, it's bad enough that Craig Kelly, now now a former Liberal backbencher, he, of course, has now moved to the crossbench, in part, it would seem, because of his own staffers' uh, scandal. Um, but, you know, it's, it's bad enough that it could happen in a backbencher's office and, as you say, in a parliamentary office. But for it to happen in the ministerial wing of the parliament and to have cabinet ministers and the prime minister's office involved and for there to be this kind of shirking of it that that it somehow or another you know they don't know like it it strikes to the core of the of, of what our democracy is about it also strikes to mythology the liberals like to push about themselves that they're great managers yeah. that they're these sort of triumphant economic managers which we all know is nonsense because we've just been talking about unemployment but it's this issue that if you have a staff member who is engaging in that kind of behaviour, mm. if there are complaints being made, you have a, you, you have a, a, a management problem. Like, Absolutely. I think we, we're all old enough and ugly enough to know that the kind of person who's repeatedly the subject of complaints about the behaviour is not your best worker, actually, is not the person who maybe has their mind on how do we solve the unemployment problem? How do we deal with the climate emergency? How can we possibly, you know, mend our diplomatic relations with, you know... in the case of working in the Defence Minister's office, how do we keep the nation safe? How do we keep the nation safe, even though I'm not really into keeping people safe as as a... alleged uh, course of practice. And that's what's, I mean, I think this is a thing that that you learn in political life. You know, there's never just one complaint. There's a pattern of them. And the more they're covered up, the more you have a direct organisational liability. Absolutely. So why would you 
sweep that under the carpet. Why would you think that that wasn't going to go away? If you're a great manager, you go, yeah, this is a structural systemic problem that's going to cost this organisation, this program in the long Um, run. And, of course, Morrison now is trying to blame it on the culture of parliament Um, uh, and, you know, trying to allude that this is is a a problem with the politics of the nation. And, look, maybe there are problems with with the way politics are done and I I, I don't want to pretend that, that everything is rosy right across the board except for the Liberal Party. I think that would be naive to suggest. But at the end of the day, the Prime Minister is the person in charge. You know, the Prime Minister is is the person in charge of the Parliament and in charge of the government. And we would never accept, we would never accept, nor should we, a CEO and or a chair of an organisation going, well, there's a cultural problem with the company or organisation that I lead, um, so we'll, we'll have some kind of investigation. And really, it's 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 a problem with the organisation, not my problem, you know, not my problem. Well, we would never accept that. And we've seen in the private sector and in the public service, people rightly fall on their sword or be removed when they've tried that, you know, like it, it just, it doesn't wash. You can't stand up and say, I will lead this nation. I will determine when this nation goes to war. I will determine what unemployment payments people in this nation get. I will set the tax rates of this nation. I will determine who gets health care and who doesn't and in what quantity. But I'm not going to be responsible for the culture of my staff and my MPs. I just love the fact to loop back to our earlier discussion. Unemployment, unemployed people are individually responsible for their unemployment, despite the fact there are fewer jobs than there are unemployed people. But Scott Morrison is somehow not responsible for the culture of just unbelievably unsafe human management going on in his own ministerial offices. And Linda Reynolds presumably is not responsible. And nobody is responsible because it's a cultural problem, but unemployment, which is actually under his control, is an individual problem of the unemployed. Neoliberal logic, everyone. Well, I just, I have to say, to see Michaelia Cash, of all people, Uh, who is uh, up to her neck... In the cover-up around what happened to Brittany Higgins. I apologise for the moaning, everybody. I'm not allowed to swear on this program (laughs) because we release it through Google. So if you hear sort of strange extended vowel sounds, just I'm sure you can invent the rest. But to see Michaelia Cash get up and be the minister to announce the dob in a job seeker who refuses to take a job that puts them in danger or underpays them or is totally inappropriate um, hotline when it's been clear for weeks that Michaelia Cash is up to her neck in the cover-up of what happened to Brittany Higgins and her allegations, Brittany Higgins' allegations of rape against another staff member. It, it just, it, it's, there's a sort, sort of gall, a sort of, um, a sort of neoliberal conceit that says not only is all the good things that happen my responsibility and all the bad things that don't somehow an externality, but I am so confident in that position that I will ignore the shared reality of everyone else and substitute it with my own in order to make this announcement that further entrenches my own reality over the over the tangible reality of the rest of the world. If it's only we could all hide behind a whiteboard when things got complicated, then. <laughs> if well, only we could. Oh, she's the charmed life of a senator, I tell again, you what. Again, again, noises without consonants in them. 
to stand in for other noises that I really feel like making. Talking about charmed life of senators, I do want to talk about, and this is a bit of a segue, um, Helen Coonan. You love Helen Coonan. Senator, former Senator Coonan. Should I be jealous? Because you talk about her a lot. Well, now now the executive chair of Crown. And former Liberal Senator Helen Coonan. Yes. And and this, you know, you want to talk about, uh, you, want to, you want to talk about misdeeds being rewarded. Uh, you know, we've we've seen Amanda Vanstone uh, comment on, on how good uh, the handling of the uh, Brittany Higgins situation has been. Amanda Vanstone herself, of course, signed off on a visa for a mobster who was arrested in connection with a $440 million drug bust. Do you know, when I was a university student, she was Minister for Education close to university campuses and totally destroyed the sector. I cut her up with a chainsaw and effigy, and I regret nothing. I regret <laughs> but, absolutely nothing. But this is this is the kind of cultural neoliberalism where where you know you can you can just get away with things that are outrageous and then become an expert on talking about why other people doing the same thing is not outrageous. Uh, Helen Coonan is now the executive chair of Crown in that same vein, uh, and Crown, of course, we've talked about in previous shows, has an issue in New South Wales. Well, it now has an issue in WA where the government in WA has announced an inquiry with the powers of a royal commission, and it has an issue in Victoria where a royal commission has actually been called uh, by the Victorian government uh, under the auspices of Ray Finkelstein to investigate whether Crown is a um, proper entity to hold a, ga- a gaming licence. Yeah, that's right. And and it comes to the issue of, I think, democracy versus capitalism, Van, doesn't it, really? Uh, yeah, which is, which is the big argument of this week in terms of the broader picture of Australian politics. Um, Daniel Andrews has said that he's prepared to revoke Crown's casino licence mm-hmm. on the basis of what's found out in this Royal Commission. And I would really like to see and I know you would as well, If should that happen that the state take over Crown? Yeah. That absolutely, if a, if a casino operator cannot meet the basic expectations of transparency, accountability and legality that are demanded in a democracy, absolutely that, that licence, that enterprise should be taken over by the state. And I think in terms of looking at um, safe and responsible gambling, uh, looking at Crown as an entity that does make a lot of money, that does employ a lot of Victorians that uh, a demonstration that the state has the right to take over businesses that fail the expectations of a democracy is entirely legitimate and something I think all Victorians should get behind. Absolutely and it and it you know the broader framework, that, and we discussed this bef- before, um, as it applies also to the debate around Facebook and yeah. the news, and and the kind of debate around, well, do you support Murdoch or do you support Zuckerberg? And and the reality, no, is, I support a nation of laws. I support yeah. the democratic right for the state to regulate business activity, and the price of doing business in a democracy is understanding that the people's representatives in the parliament have the right to set the conditions of your business. And certainly, I'm sure it's much easier to do business in either failed states or in dictatorships where you're only really having a monodirectional conversation. But that's not what we do here. And I've gotten into a lot of fights on the internet in the past week because... um, 
I have said, absolutely, even if it's the Morrison government, even if it's the Morrison government and their absolutely cack-handed mismanagement of basically everything they touch. Absolutely. You know, everything Trump touches dies, everything Scott Morrison touches turns to garbage. Um, even if the legislation that has been drawn up to limit the powers of Facebook and demand, you know, essentially rental for news relationships, mm. is that we should support it because... Facebook has become an absolutely unaccountable multinational. It has platformed and spread the phenomena of fake news, fascism, all, and misogyny, mm. all of these organised hate movements that have been rebirthed by mm. the opportunity of, of Facebook. Facebook has refused to take responsibility for or, or show any kind of accountability to democracies about its behaviour that it would have been subjected to if it had have been a traditional print publication Absolutely. or a television station. And the idea that we would want the state to have less power over Facebook, that somehow Facebook should determine the conditions of its own existence, is crazy. So I don't care if this legislation is fundamentally imperfect. And actually, I don't even care if it's about News Corp or News Corp are behind it, because the principle that the state has the right to regulate media corporations is one we should be affirming, especially if we've got problems with Rupert Murdoch, especially if we think Murdoch's control of the Australian media, which is unprecedented anywhere in the Western world, no other Western culture has one person who has so much control of their yeah, media... Absolutely. If we want to bring Murdoch into line, we have to make the argument that the state has the right to regulate media corporations. And the fight is currently the state versus Facebook. And for Facebook to throw that appalling tantrum and go, well, fine, we'll just take all the news sources down, where we watched women's health services yeah. and rape crisis centres and domestic violence interfaces and frontline services, they all disappeared because suddenly... Health departments. They decided they were news, they were news organisations, was was endangering. Like, Facebook proved why they should be subject to regulation because they actually endangered people. If And, you know, out where we live, the city of Ballarat lost all of these services for women. If you were a woman who relied on Facebook as your interface, mm. that that's where you knew information was, and you were in some kind of health or, vi or violence crisis that, d that day when everything came down, you had been left vulnerable by the corporation and it was deplorable. So even if it is the Morrison government, who I did not vote for, who I do not support, mm. even if, you know, there's influence of News Corp, another organisation that I don't support, and it was very interesting being called a Murdoch shill on Twitter the other day, bonjour wow. trolls, because I'm like, have you had five consecutive columns written about your bath time practices in a Murdoch press? Because I have. Have you been called a goose? Has it been insinuated that, you know, you're too ugly to get laid and your father didn't love you and all the ridiculous garbage I've had to weather yeah. from Murdoch loons over the years? Even if that corporation has that level of influence over Morrison to be behind those laws, we as a democracy have to defend them because you don't get power back from corporations. Look at the United States where, you know, a corporate right to be recognised as having the same democratic rights as an individual has enabled, you know, the absolute disaster of electoral funding and, and the total corruption of the American political system by corporations. And, you know, let's not lose the de democratic mechanism Mechanisms we have for control. Like Absolutely. these are the principles people fought and died for. And people are like, well, you know, I don't like I don't like Murdoch, so yay, Facebook. 
It's like Facebook is not the hero here. No, no, and that's the thing, isn't it? Oh, you know? I'm angry. Well, Listen to how angry I am. Of course, because part of the part of the anger for me is that we <laughs> you read allowed... the articles about me in the bar. Well, and absolutely. Was well, yeah. and that we allowed it to get to this point. You know that that our democratic leaders didn't intervene sooner, and now we're having to intervene almost after the fact. And put the genie back in the box. Yeah, that's right. You know, Facebook Facebook has very deliberately gone about a corporate strategy that has said, we're going to get every person on the planet to give us their data. We're going to put ourselves in a position to be unassailable. The too-big-to-fail doctrine is not something corporations try and avoid. Corporations absolutely want to be too big to fail. They want to be too big to be regulated. They want that level of power so that they can make profit. That's what it's about. Unregulated and hopefully untaxed, which is always the ultimate aim of these corporations. And so for, for people to go, oh, well, no, you know, Facebook is is too important and this is about Murdoch versus Zuckerberg. It's not about Murdoch versus Zuckerberg. No. It's, it's about, about democracy versus capitalism. And I will back democracy every time, even if the representation of that democracy is Scott Morrison and the Liberal government. Because yeah. one of the very, like, one of the few things that we can really cling to in this country is that compulsory voting means we know that our electoral system is reliable and it's transparent and unfortunately he does represent the electoral majority. Like, I mean, I loathe Scott Morrison, but I can't argue that the people didn't elect him because they yep. did. Yep. And if the will of the people has put that, has has given him that mandate to make that decision um, over corporation, well, obviously we have and, to support that. And we can debate the merits of, of the individual items within the bill and we can push for it to be better and we can push for it to be improved. But the fundamental point, and I totally agree with you on this, is that we have to have democracy regulate capitalism. And and really, that's that's the deal. That's the marriage deal that was struck. That's the the agreement, the thing that was carved into stone, the the, the pact in blood, if you like, uh, in in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, was that democracy would regulate capitalism and that the people would ensure that they were not exploited by the capitalists. For us to to for us to kind of have gotten to this stage and I and I appreciate there is a lot of exploitation by capitalists but for us to get to a stage where people are arguing well no 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 we should let this group of capitalists exploit us because it hurts this other faction of capitalists. That's not. Oh, the we idea. should let these capitalists exploit us because it hurts a government I don't like. That's that's, that's crazy. That is actually like, crazy. You know, in my <laughs> in my spiritual community, we have a saying which is, "You've got to tackle your problems in the order." Which, with which they'll kill you. Yeah. And realistically, I reckon Mark Zuckerberg, given the kind of things that we've all seen happen on Facebook, is much more of a danger than Scott Morrison. And even I find it absolutely amazing to say that. Well, you know, one is competent and the other isn't. Then you can draw your own conclusions from that. <laughs> Um, but, but, but one we should is also say, recallable to the Australian people at the right. next election and the other one isn't. And on, on that, you know, the order in which they'll kill you, if we just look at Texas oh and what's God. happening in Texas, where you've got a situation where they have allowed the capitalists to own the power infrastructure, to basically self-regulate, in inverted commas, to withdraw from the national power grid because they didn't want to be regulated by the democratically elected federal government, 
You've got total blackouts, So days and days without power, and people are dying, Van. Yes, people are dying. What's happening in Texas is absolutely amazing, and it is the, it's the crisis point of, a, of the relationship between the American people and American capitalism. So Texas has had completely Republican leadership for 26 years. Republican governors, Republican senators, Republican legislatures. It's a Republican state. And at, over the course of that time, they not only privatised all of Texas electricity assets, Mm. but they also literally withdrew from the national grid because they wanted to set their own pricing. And they use essentially like a surge pricing model where the private electricity companies that don't really exist, Mm. like there's still one entity that that physically runs all the infrastructure. It's all divided up by lawyers. There's a great article in The Atlantic um, that will be online over the – about, you know, how Texas Mm. totally failed – um, so it's all this sort of mad, neoliberal madness and companies pretending they exist that are legal entities and selling, you know, your relationship to the power grid and mm. whatever. And it's meant that um, the, these corporations have had no incentive to winterize any of the assets. Yeah. So the actual physical infrastructure of power. And let's remember, Texas is supposed to be the energy capital of the world. Not only yeah. is it, you know, the image of the oil industry, but it's, it's also the international image of the natural gas industry. Mm-hmm. And renewables are only 10% of the Texas power grid. Yeah. And of course, nothing's been winterized. Um, they're not part of a national grid that can compensate for usage. And it's it's literally falling apart between um, things just not working or things setting themselves on fire. And it's caused an, a, a cascading infrastructure collapse because um, at households that had no heating because mm. there were roiling blackouts and the rest of it because the grid couldn't supply the energy they needed to heat homes in not entirely unprecedented weather. Like it's colder than it's been in a very long time, but it's not the coldest it's ever been in mm. Texas. Um, so households were leaving tap stripping so their pipes wouldn't freeze so they could still get water and it caused the water system to start to collapse. Nothing has been invested in in years because the neoliberals run out of everything and, you know, the market will determine, somehow the market will determine that we keep everything fixed. And of course it doesn't. So you've had fires, electricity failures, um, water failures, people, an 11-year-old boy died of hypothermia because his family couldn't heat the house. You've had families who are literally setting their furniture on fire to stay warm. You've had 450 carbon monoxide poisonings because people were like lighting barbecue grills and things things inside the the house house to stay warm. It is, it is apocalyptic what has been going on in Texas. And now I think 40 people are now dead. And who is the state Republican government of Texas blaming? Who are they blaming, Ben? Oh, who are they blaming? It'll be renewables. They're blaming renewables. They're Those blaming windmills didn't move. Joe Biden and his Green New Deal agenda. And it's like, it yeah, but he hasn't... gone to Congress. It hasn't gone to Congress. None of that's been legislated. He did not... Like, 26 years of Republicans. The Republicans put all of that in, and yet, miraculously, it's Democrats' fault. But this really highlights and serves as an example, I think, to us here in Australia. Don't privatise your electricity grid. And and don't back capitalism over democracy. The, 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 if you believe that you have a right to running water, that you should be able to breathe the air, that when you turn on the light switch, the power comes on. Yeah, and, you know, it shouldn't explode and set your house on fire. And that 11-year-old children shouldn't die freezing in their homes, then you want to make sure that you're electing governments that are regulating the exploited 
and the exploitative nature of capitalism. I've got no problem with there being power companies. My preference is that they are nationalised. My preference is they are state-run and controlled directly by the people. But if you're going to have a privatised system, then you've got to have it well-regulated and competently regulated. And there can be no, well, we're going to withdraw because we don't want to have the regulation. So, Ben, there are Texas households where the power stayed on, where they have received energy bills between $2,500 and $10,000. And this is how out-of-control privatisation is in America. The power companies who are issuing these ridiculous bills have said, well, obviously we think that if we ask you for all the money now, you'll probably be bankrupt. So we're going to work out a repayment plan. Not we're going to forgive this because this is ridiculous and it is not your fault that you had to have the power on in order to live so your children wouldn't die, but we are actually going to bleed you for even more money over a longer period of time. And it really does tell everyone that you cannot and you must not... Trust capitalists ever. ...ever allow capitalists to be the ones who determine life and death because they will determine it based on people's capacity to pay. And that'll be the only metric they use. And where did Ted Cruz, Texas Senator, go, Ben? I think he went to Cancun, didn't he? And the lovely... Mexico, um, south of the border. The Attorney General of Texas, whose name momentarily escapes me, who was the one who put together the lawsuit. Oh, yeah, the lawsuit about the election. About the elections and Trump really won and the rest of it. Guess where he went? Uh, I can't even imagine. Hawaii? Utah. Went to Utah. Wow. So you have the actual scumbags who have put this system in place fleeing when everything goes to toilet. So, look, I think that's a really interesting topic because it's it's interesting to see how what's going on with Crown and the the accusations there and the allegations of corruption there and the the malfeasance there and what may well be uh, a, a position where the state steps in and actually starts to run these things again. And I know that there are people who have issues around um, gambling, but I've got to tell you, a well-regulated, properly controlled gambling industry is much, much better. Accountable to the people through democratic mechanisms. Is much, much better than an underground um, black market uh, gambling industry where there's a lot of violence. Or an above-ground black market gambling industry, (laughs) as apparently we have been living with. Exactly right. Um, As well as, of course, um, what we're seeing in the debates around news and information and technology, uh, these are these are at their core still the same issues and same arguments. The, regardless of what you put on top of them, regardless of whether it's about coding uh, a pokey machine or coding uh, a social media platform. Or keeping the power Or on. keeping the power on. Democracy, use it or lose it. Absolutely right. Now, let's end on some good news, Van. Apart from the fact that I love this dog. Who this... is so cute. And he could tell I was getting really amped up because he's on my lap and I could feel his heart beating. Oh. He's so cute. <laughs> but but tell us, what is the good news? And I believe it's got to do with soil and farming. Yeah, it's got to do with regenerative ag- agriculture, which I am way into. So regenerative agriculture is about looking at soil health as a means of trapping carbon. Because what we know is that if we don't till soil, like if we don't break it up and allow it to release um, mm-hmm. you know, the carbon. organic carbon that it traps into the environment, it's it, you can actually make farming a form of, of carbon sinking. Mm-hmm. And what's happening is that corporations who are being bound by expectations that they will reduce their carbon footprint, which is why we regulate corporations and have guidelines and things in the first place, are realising uh, the food pr- production companies are realising just how they can ma- meet their target. 
benefits through things like practising um, regenerative agriculture and aiming towards a much larger carbon capture in the way that they produce food. And what this means practically is rather than tilling the soil to break up weeds, that you plant cover crops Mm -hmm. and you use compost, sometimes compost from outside your immediate farming process. And you have a much more um, holistic and genuinely ecological, like, um, you know, sort of overarching understanding of what you're doing, producing food within an agricultural capacity. It's better for water retention. It's better for um, habitat protection and Mm -hmm. working with existing climate, existing habitat, as well as your farming project and looking at the ways that there are principles in nature around fertilisation, around around, um, food production management, soil health, food health, Mm. uh, better retention of water, maintaining waterways, maintaining habitats, all of those things are integrated. And if we employ those in the way that we make food for ourselves and our mass populations, we reduce our carbon footprint enormously, as well as treat animals more humanely, um, maintain, you know, threaten plants, threaten animals, and um, and have healthier food for us to eat. So Stonyfield Organic is one example. It's an American organic food company. It supplies enormous amounts. It's got dairies. It runs organic dairies. Mm-hmm. And it's paying farmers um, as part of a experimental program to look at how they can come up with more efficient regenerative agriculture cultural practices to package for all the farmers in their supply chain. And other companies like Walmart, who is one of the most evil companies in the world, quite honestly, Danone, other big uh, general mills, really big food corporations, are realising that if you can add an extra metric ton of carbon capture to every acre you farm, you will massively decrease your emissions and meet all of your targets. And the idea that that could be like adapted by farmers and empowering farmers within that process um, is is really exciting and certainly uh, something that we should have a lot of hope for Mm. in terms of looking at the way we need to change the way that we run our agricultural systems worldwide in order to mitigate climate effects like we've known that for a long time and the idea that this kind of philosophy which 10 years ago was in the realm of you know people would think it was the hippies down the road and the hessian shoe wearers who were universally into this maybe they were um i was certainly into it and i wasn't wearing hessian shoes (laughs) because i had nothing more than a cliche but certainly it's it's the good environmental news of the week that that corporations are are trying to meet their targets and putting money behind it to do something that's better for all of us. Well, and I think there's some good news there that suggests that maybe we'll all be able to continue to eat as well. God, that'd be amazing. We'll be able to eat and breathe the air. We won't have to make a choice between one or the other. That's really great news, Van. (laughs) Really great news. I'm really pleased to hear that, actually. Um, So I think... I think He's so patient with me. Oh, Ben. I think uh, that's the week on Wednesday, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Last week's episode was our most downloaded episode ever. It was. And it was. You've pushed us into the top 200 uh, most listened He's to podcasts so in the country. He loves, he loves hard stats, my Ben. Can I you do, tell? I do like a stat. I do like a stat. Uh, and I think that's a really good one. So we are, we are getting into that top 200 up there with some of these big podcasts from the US. Uh, thank 
thanks for sticking with us in our shed uh, over the last six months. It's been fantastic. And um, do keep sharing our, uh, our podcast. The Week on Wednesday exists because you listen to it, because you share it, because you talk about it with your friends, your family, your co-workers. Because you like our dog and we live for the compliments. <laughs> we really do. Keep them coming. Keep contacting us. Let us know what you want to hear us talk about. Um, <laughs> we really do appreciate it. Dramaticus is sort of desperate to have a cuddle but also jump down now. So at this point, Fanny, I think that's the week on Wednesday. Love you, Vanny. I love you too. And I love you, Germ. Bye. Bye.